Part Four, Section One of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Four, Section One. Oh, how can love's eye be true that is so vexed with watching and with tears? Shakespeare, Sonnet One Forty Eight. Thought of work had halted Edith's aimless wandering on the Christmas-spattered evening streets downtown. Now the drawing-table and empty chair in her studio brought Callista poignantly close in absence. How arrogantly, like a beloved child, Callista had captured her life. Window-shopping with no heart for it, necessary gifts already bought, she had become fed up with Winchester, noise, people, sidewalk grit flung by the wind, with gaudy lights desperately imitating good cheer, drizzle-nosed bell-ringers and Santa Clauses, carols once pretty, now done to death, fed up with crowd faces till she recoiled from them, as from a rat-race of tragic masks. Getting off the bus, she seldom used her car downtown, hating the struggle of searching out a parking space. Her skirt was twitched up by the breeze for the lech of a pair of whistling teenagers. Edith had been dourly amused. Try looking at the face sometime, kids. And the mood kept with her as far as her third-floor walk-up on Hallam Street. The hour was 9.30, Papa Dorn just closing his delicatessen on the ground floor, giving her a gentle, Good night, Miss Nolan. No mail, but a swatch of ads drenched in the season's gladness, and the janitor would never provide a wastebasket in the entry. She dumped the mess in the studio trash box, glancing at the cameras, screens, props, at the dim end of the studio. A fantastic way to earn a living, close to the mainstream of human vanity. But at this end, with the north light, wall shelves, drawing table, work could be done after survival was taken care of. Callista's work for a year, and Edith's own. The bread-and-butter end of the studio was already dusty. Edith had cancelled portrait engagements for the duration of the trial, disinclined to hire a temporary helper. Why knock oneself out immortalizing the fish-faced? She touched the table, symbolic touching of a hardness without coldness that was one element of Callista Blake. Stop it, Red. She's not here. She took down a folder of Callista's drawings, some careful, some swift, all begotten of a mind that could see, laugh, pity, understand. Also in that folder was a letter Callista had written after Edith's last visit to the detention cell, Saturday, three days ago. Edith knew the drawings. She would find nothing new in them now, when she was out of temper and moved by a wish to start some work of her own. Glance at that abandoned wagon in long grass, or the supermarket clerk, Homely days and weariness caught in a dozen lines with that compassion of Callista's, at nineteen, which she could almost never convey in spoken words? Not now. 
Edith glanced at a watercolor on the wall, one she had taken from Cal's apartment for safety with Herb Chalmers' distracted consent and after the police had given leave. A mountain slope, a wind-ravished pine, shouting deep color against a storm sky intense with the power of two worlds, the world of life and growth and dying before Callista's eyes, and the world of Callista's most observing self. Off in her living room, the telephone rang. Edith ran for it. The voice was slurred, uncertain. Miss Nolan, Edith, all evening trying to get you. Jim Doherty, now please don't hang up. Of course I won't. She tried not to snap. What is it? Had to ask you something. He was rather drunk. May seem unreasonable. Guess you hate me anyhow, but... I won't hang up. I don't hate you. What is it, Jim? Maybe wouldn't blame you. You feel I let her down. Feel I'm an enemy or something. Sorry. Not what I'm trying to say. She waited, watching her thin white fingers play with a pencil from the telephone table, a pinpoint of perception somehow important, as if it kept her distressed and startled mind from swirling away down the telephone mouthpiece, like water down the hole of a hand basin. She heard a beat of mechanical music. Jim would be in a bar, the booth shut against a squalling of radio or television. The large-boned, dark Irish face would be pale with alcohol, filmed with sweat, black hair disordered, wide mouth talking against its own unwillingness. Dark eyes rigid, unfocused, behind them Jim's own image of a crackpot redhead who was Callista's friend. He was a tall man. The stingy crannies of the booth would bother his legs. An impressive young stallion. Any woman felt that much, and one could, sometimes, see why Callista— Edith, what happened there before adjournment? I've got to know. I sort of lost track. Then they were taking her away. What— You didn't hear what she said? No, that's it. I didn't. I was praying, well, for her though I suppose that doesn't mean anything to you. No offense. Anyway, I... Didn't your friend hear what she said? My... Oh, you mean Father Bland? No, he didn't. Is he deaf? Yes, a little. She heard the righteous reproach. It must have done Jim good to put her in the wrong. What did she say? She said, go away, my love. He would be still there. She heard breathing and the background noise, a hot trumpet squeaking up the summits of banality. She said, Jim, do you still love her at all? But how could she know the color of the word in his language? How was he to glimpse the meanings of it in her own? If even Sam Granger couldn't quite admit that divergence of language long ago, my own language far simpler then. If not even Sam, where are you? 
then how could poor Jim Doherty, who had no wish to think for himself? What else did she say? Hadn't Jim heard the idiot question? It seemed to her the question had been divided, an echo voice asking of another with another name. Sam, where are you? Do you still love her? The name was Redtop, remember? Or think of her at all? Meanwhile, she said nothing else, Jim, nothing I heard. Oh, I, look, I never told her, I mean, oh, I don't know, I, Edith held the receiver further away with its wiry babble of misery. I tried to make her understand that part all in her head. She, she fell in love with what she wanted you to be. What? No, you're wrong. She wasn't in love with me. That's what I meant, Jim. She loved an image, not a man. Only there was a... Edith, stop. Don't say it. A tangible male involved in it, too, who happened to get her pregnant. I can't go for that psychological stuff. She's over eighteen. Well, I know you can beat me over the head with the pregnancy if you want to, but since it wasn't God's will that it should live, what can I do? What she said, perhaps. She heard her own voice electric, hurting in her ears. If she were still carrying it, what would you do? That would be wages of sin, I guess the way it was God's will you should try out a virgin for variety, or kicks? Did you just feel that if an unconventional, unreligious girl wasn't a whore, she ought to be? I shouldn't have called. God forgive you. Edith set the instrument down. The trembling would presently stop. Overcharge of adrenaline stupid physical need to slash again with claws. She fumbled a cigarette from the box by the telephone. Anyway, Jim would not call back. He'd rest on the dignity of his last word, which Father Bland would have approved. Sam Granger was in the world somewhere, married probably, with one of the symphonies, teaching, his myriad hours of violin and oboe practice, piano, harmony, counterpoint, all had been aiming at that. The violin for preference. Oboe because good violinists are numerous. With affection that had never perished, Edith thought, What Sam wants, Sam earns and gets. She noticed she was thinking in the present tense. Fair enough it would still be true. Sam Granger would still be a man dedicated and absorbed, immune to discouragement, too big for distractions. He had not been too seriously distracted by an affair with a red-headed art student. So what has become of the old brownstone front, shabby sacred rooms, thready hole in the rug, genially silly print of The Storm, Mrs. Cardle considered that one real nice for anyone that was artistic-like, and the bed that mysteriously didn't squeak if you lay across it instead of lengthwise. What stills the music, 
and where are the green shadows of Arcadia? The rooms would have accepted the whispering and secret laughter of a crowd of lovers in seven years, all giggling at sad, vague, moral Mrs. Cardle and that grayish lump of dough, her husband, whose thick delirium of hate for the antique coal furnace in the basement was very nearly a form of love. You saw the Cardles dealing with an ebb and flow of Boston lodgers' world without end. But they could have been human and mortal. The brownstone could have yielded to a flat-faced office building. If it had not, though, the center flagstone of the rear yard would look the same in a sluice of rain, the crack in it like the junction of Ohio and Mississippi, seen by young eyes from the window of the third floor back. One gray afternoon, Edith's room dim, the curtains adequate, they had stood naked near that window to watch Mrs. Cardle trying to teach her old round-bellied bulldog to roll over and play dead. Behind closed eyes and seven years, Edith felt again Sam's chin at her shoulder, shiver of held-in laughter at the dog's patient refusal to understand, and its resemblance to Mr. Cardle. Sam's arm under her breasts moving, she turning then, clutching his black curls in mimic savagery, twisting free of him, racing him to the bed, caught with welcome violence, and sudden entering thrust violently held through a long course of love, an animal riot of pleasure carrying them together to the height, to the moment when the heart must break and die a little, the explosion of not pain, the blindness, and the quiet and the quiet, summer of a hillside, also homely truth of two bodies in the aftermath of orgasm, each comic serious detail of throbbing and subsiding organs felt, known, recorded in the mind's continuing life history with acceptance, tenderness, satisfaction, relief, amusement, wonder. Kissing him slowly in the quiet, kissing the hard-tipped fingers of his left hand, fine bony rib cage and knotty shoulders, the lifetime red mark printed under his jawbone by the violin, his other love. And, time I should get back to work, Red Top. Edith had been jealous in a way, yet she had never knowingly desired to cut him down to size or usurp the government of his private world and surely there had been cause to resent his indifference toward her own work, ambition, oriented dreaming. Not indifference, call it lack of awareness. As on that heartbreak evening when she had taken down Mrs. Cardle's storm and replaced it with a dark-toned watercolor, a Nolan original, and, in her judgment, good. He never saw it. When he slipped into her room, he had not seemed much preoccupied with his own studies. He just looked at the watercolor and didn't see it. Cheerful until her darkening, hopelessly unreasonable mood infected him. When the quarrel began, over something else, some damned side issue now blanked out of memory, he still didn't see the picture. That quarrel was patched up the next night, in bed. There were others. 
the essential trust of two against the world was gone in the darkness behind daily perception two strangers still winced and glared astonished at the wounds drift then from radiance to near commonplace above the organ point of things unsaid in the summer after the school year sam had written once edith had answered twice end of affair yielding to a long assault of cancer edith's mother died that summer an emptiness then plus discouragement with art school that kept her from going back instead she had taken a commercial course in photography her dazed but practical father approving and footing the bill the following summer a purposeful wandering in amy the model a a cantankerously good little heap even now in nineteen fifty nine remembering more clearly than any other conversation what her father had said before she left look skinny you marry or work at something you like or just loaf a while and raise hell but don't turn into a dutiful daughter taking care of the old man shoving aside a heap of paperwork brought home the old man was a cpa and a good one and turning up to her the bald head moon face tenderly sarcastic eyes don't do that or i will turn you over my knee and your fanny dearest is not fat enough to sustain the impact the old man takes care of himself a purposeful wandering for that summer she had surely been looking for something more than a place that would do for a photographic studio looking for maturity perhaps then winchester the investment paying off in adequate survival plus a bit of freedom no more letters to sam end of affair diminuendo to an imperfect cadence dissonant with the organ point the only resolution silence what did we think we were doing i was fighting to be a person or just to make sam admit i must sometimes be person first sweetheart second a lot of the time i was just damn well fighting deep inside very likely the daughter of earth had been weighing consequences a simpler eve murmuring at home nest security advantages of snaring a good man when there was one to be had my first my only which for a warm-blooded redhead is absurd gentlemen no argument what happens why this other drift that for some of us many of us extends from months into years of accepting dullness and the erosion of daily demands waiting for the rainbow blaze that may never appear the heart knowing all the time that there's only one life and not much time to live it edith fidgeted angry at the introspection itself at the fatigue or laziness that held her in this armchair when some other part of her honesty wanted to get up and go to work oh wind-sweet valley of arcadia remember me she noticed the chill and got up then with a flounce of irritation caught by jim's telephone call she had not yet turned up the heat for the burrow 
Maybe she wouldn't bother. Turn it up in the studio, leave the burrow cool for bedtime. Get to work, or try to. Dust filmed the fireplace mantel. In a half-light beyond the bedroom doorway, yesterday's panties gaped lewdly from the seat of a chair. She must have been seduced by some clever idea when she was on the point of tossing them in the laundry bag. At least she had made the bed. Too much alone, small Edith. She remembered with a wrench of pain that early last August Cal had just about agreed to give up her apartment and come share this one. August. Edith carried her coat into the bedroom, hung it properly, stuffed the offending panties away. If Callista and Jim could have spoken each other's languages? Proposition absurd. Callista groping out of the jungle of an ugly childhood. Jim living, till Anne died anyway, according to surface impulses and ready-made directives of social and religious authority. No, there could have been no conversation. What ailed her going overboard for that bundle of bad luck? Call it chance. Swept away by need, nearness, charm of a prepossessing male. Maybe unknowingly goaded in spite of herself by the dithering emphasis of American culture on sexual activity as the end, cure, meaning for everything. Love, love, love. And Jim no more to blame than she. As much an accident as falling downstairs. A gust rattled the bedroom window and hummed across chimney tops and died. Go away, my love. Edith changed out of the green suit into a cherished dingy blue bathrobe. In the bureau mirror she glimpsed her own color and motion. Clear sky-blue eyes would hold that color a lifetime, though the irises would some day blur at the rims. The vision would not remain twenty-twenty. Lids would crinkle, brows turn sandy gray, then white. Grooves in the forehead would deepen, and the brackets at nose and mouth. Red hair must whiten, quickly, one would hope, without streaks. That smoothness from small chin down a neck to the collar of Venus, with no sag or wrinkle at thirty-one, well, already crowding her luck a bit there. Pretty Anne Doherty, for all her needless dieting, had been starting a tiny double chin at twenty-six. The bathrobe unbelted allow a gleam of small breasts, neat and high, jaunty and delicate, red-tipped like white peonies. Fun for somebody going to waste. Are you listening, bitch in the manger? Her finger tapped the unsmiling woman in the glass, and she was stricken by thought of another face, also far from the conventional norms of beauty. They used a hood, didn't they? Electrodes concealed by an intolerable obscenity of black rubber? No thought is finished until the thinker dies, then only blotted out, the death-rattle a throat-clearing for what's not to be said. Mother, the morphine not helping yet, 
certain she'd left something on the stove to boil over, couldn't convince her. For thought is action. What's this, Edith? Philosophy, A, Radcliffe, class of 48, and all that? All the same, she reflected, it is action, and the hell with Plato, the father of half-truths. So why wonder that an earlier self becomes a creature of mystery? Where was the cross, thin woman who talked sharply to Jim Doherty a few minutes ago? You say, it was one I who thought and acted thus and so. Now I am not what I was, but I inherit any continuing good and bad and all responsibility. If I don't clean up after the person I left behind, nobody else will. That was the thorny passage, the truth too easily blurred. Yet only a few, she thought, would endure the concept of mind as motion. By contrast, how apparently solid and comfortable are the absolutes, static symbols, devices of everyday talk to create the illusion of a stillness in time, so that we can draw breath and feel for a moment that we know who we are. In a ship you can stay below, avoid the portholes, ignore the long rise and fall as the vessel encounters a rolling of the sea, and pretend your cabin is a landslide thing. Fine woodwork, carpet, all that. And if now and then you do feel a throb of engines or tilting of the world, why, Captain God's on the bridge and will see to everything. And yet it doesn't take too much courage to go stand at the bow and discover the wind in your face. A child can do it. A grown-up can recognize the captain as skilled but humanly mortal. Edith crossed the hall to the studio, where cool light on the drawing table waited like a reminder of courage. She took out Callista's letter, carefully as though the pages were drawings, and the large light handwriting did have some of that quality, Callista's hand refusing to waver at any disturbance of her thought. Dear Edith, it was good to be with you, though I was unpleasant, ridding myself of accumulated venom. I can't safely talk in my worst way to anyone else. Cecil is too vulnerable. And I miscalculated, though we had more time, was about to shut up and hear you, what I wanted above all, but then time up, opportunity gone. Don't try to cut the red tape for another visit after the trial opens. When I see you now, I think too much, in spite of you, of what I may lose. The work, freedom, gaiety, good talk, I never heard till I met you. I'd better keep my shell until this is over. I seem to need it. Stay away, just because I do cherish you. Dear Edith, I'm sickened to remember how I talked this afternoon, but maybe it won't end the way my present mood says it will. A mood is only part of a journey. You said that to me once. Now I keep the words with me. Cecil came to see me after you left. He looks ill, Edith. Does poor old Mrs. Wilkes really do enough about looking after him? Look, I tried to tell him more about Mother and Herb, 
and the Saturday night uproar with mother that I described to you. Give him more of that, will you? I made a botch of telling him, I suppose because I love him. My mind wouldn't focus on my own mess. How does it happen, see let it slip, that Herb is meeting so many of the incidental expenses when I said so damn plain it was to come out of my money from father's estate? Please try to find out, will you? I can't think straight any more tonight. I slop off into self-pity, lose track altogether. I don't believe human beings are adequate for this kind of thing, Edith. I know I'm not anyway. You heard me whimper once, only once. Alone I do a good deal of that, friend. I can't help it. Hermit crab's a soft blob of nothing much inside the borrowed shell. I'm no Latimer sticking his hand in the fire. Not even jailed for a cause. Just want to live. I don't know what love is, either. But now and then I wonder if anyone ever knew more about it than I do. My love to you. Callista. End of Part 4, Section 1 Recording by Roger Moline